All right, welcome back to another episode of the 90th percentile of Baseball America podcast. This is your host, Jeff Ponce. I'm joined by an old friend of uh, the show, I guess, or myself in general. That's Lance Brozdowski of Marquee Sports Network. It's, of course, the network that broadcasts the Cubs. You may have seen Lance on the Cubs broadcast recently. He's bringing an analytical slant to the broadcast this year. He's also an old friend of mine. We hosted a podcast many, many years ago for a couple of years together. And uh, I think we, you know, early on in this journey, we sort of both went down this path. So Lance, welcome to the show. Introduce yourself to our listeners here. Hey, what's going on? Yeah, it's it's great to do a podcast with you. I, I feel like we haven't talked in on a pod in like two and a half years, maybe. Like, bit, yeah, it's been a while. It's been a really long time. But yeah, we used to do a weekly podcast on the minors when we were both at Razball, which is a fantasy baseball site that was probably one of the first places I think I wrote there and uh, one of the SB Nation sites, which I feel like have definitely kind of died down in popularity. But those used to be really fun back like five, six years ago, maybe. Um, so, man, it was it's been a while. Many moons, <laughs> you could say. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm a player development analyst at Marquee Sports Network, which is kind of a title I created myself. Um, I really think that there's an opportunity very present to visually communicate some of baseball's complex topics on the player development side, which is not, I think, section just on the minor leagues. I think development is something that happens at the major league level as well. So coming with the minor league background a little bit, but I really am trying to differentiate in that respect of just, hey, let's let's be smarter about certain things. Let's add context to a lot of takes that I've seen out there. Um, and let's come in with interesting perspective and talk about what organizations are talking about in a way that is as distilled as possible. And I will say it is very difficult to distill complex topics down. That is the moneymaker for anyone in this space. It's hard. And it's even harder to do when you only have three and a half minutes on a pregame segment, sure. you know, um, yeah, or absolutely. two minutes on the broadcast in a pregame hit where it's like, introduce yourself and then you're ready 30, 30 seconds in and you're like, oh my God. So it's been a huge learning experience to jump into the TV side. Um, it's not something I thought I'd really get into, but I really, I, I just, I think the key thing for me was realizing that a lot of the stuff that I know you and I very much enjoy discussing, I think personally coming out of grad school at, at Northwestern university, like you, you realize that a lot of people are very visual learners, you know, and the best, right. I think the, you know, Saris's Travis Sawchicks, like those guys are incredible at communicating Ben Lindbergh, incredible at communicating in written word, but there are not a lot of people trying to do that on the visual side, whether that be creating YouTube videos or just talking into camera about these things that is competent enough to be able to address a point and feel comfortable that if someone from an org saw it, they wouldn't be like, that's wrong, you know? So I think that's the sweet spot for me. I, it's my bet, my bet of the last eight months, and I'm sure it'll change in some time, but that is kind of my, my MO right now. And I, I really enjoy my, my gig at Marquee. They've given, I, I, kudos to them because they've given me the platform sure. to talk about things that, you're probably maybe a little too advanced for a broadcast, uh, but that that allows you to see what what maybe works and what doesn't, and it's it's helping me evolve really quick. So, well, yeah, I I think there's an element just to to people who have the curiosity who are watching the game. Um, you know, you're not beating people over the head, but you're giving them sort of these samples to go down these rabbit holes. We have the internet these days. Uh, it just it takes you know just one phrase, one interesting sort of anecdote. To sort of send somebody down uh, one of these paths of sort of 
discovery in terms of baseball, right? With just so much information that's out there. And I know that you and I have, have sort of done the same thing. So with that said, I want to go into your background because I think it's really interesting. You mentioned Northwestern grad school. You mentioned the fact that we worked together at Rasball. Yeah. On a podcast uh, together, the Rasball Prospect Podcast, Rest in Peace. All right, um, <laughs> But I think it's interesting because I think, you know, we've both sort of found whatever full-time gigs yeah. in baseball media. And I'm interested to sort of take it all the way back to, I believe you were undergrad at like UMass Amherst. Correct. You started a, a, a sports blog sort of on your own and then branched out. But take us take us from there on to sort of how you got this gig with Marquis because you've worked a few different places. You've worked yeah. line actually. I did. Yeah, we'll get to that. I uh, So, yeah, wow. Um, I was undergrad accounting at UMass Amherst. Uh, I've always enjoyed the business side of anything, sports, just business in general, um, and I've always had a little bit of a slant for numbers. I'm comfortable, even if I'm not, I don't have a strong data background at all. I can't really code, um, which maybe is a detriment in terms of if I ever wanted to do teamwork, but uh, <laughs> inside an organization, I'm saying. Um, but we had UMass Amherst undergrad. I think I took a bunch of sport classes there, actually. I didn't get a minor in sport management, but they have a really good sport department. Um, ben Sherrington, I believe. I'm, I hope I got that right. I, I'm mixing up. There's a couple other guys off the top of my head that came through there that I don't know off the top of my head. But Chris Chris Antonetti from the Indians, I want to say. Um, apologies if I get that wrong. Uh, a couple other guys. Again, just there's a lot of people in baseball who went through UMass's sport department, which is really ironic that I wasn't in that department when I was there. And now I am where I am. It would have made much more sense uh, if the inverse occurred or something. But, uh, yeah, I, I think I – Applied to work at like SB Nation as like a game recapper because I, I just really enjoyed baseball. Like I, I watched it all the time. I enjoyed sports and baseball particularly, thinking about it in a more advanced way too as opposed to just kind of digesting the surface level stuff. Um, so I started off there. I, I, SB Nation was doing some stuff. Razzball, I think I wrote and then jumped on the Prospect podcast with you. I, I also just kind of grew up around the minor leagues back when the um, New Britain Rockets were a team in uh, New Britain, Connecticut. That was relatively close to my home in Connecticut, such that I mean, my dad would go there all the time. And we saw really good prospects come through there. Um, just, it was a lot of fun. I just thought that it, it was more affordable and it was, it, it was, it just kind of grew the love for baseball, you know, and it grew an understanding of like how guys develop and started making me really curious about that. I think as to like why some guys would make and some, some guys wouldn't when most of the information given was pretty anecdotal of just like, he's good or he's bad or he's big or he throws hard, you know, like then you start to think like, okay, like, this guy's big and throws hard, but didn't make it. Why? You know, like those questions started to arise as I matured and stuff. And yeah, I took it from there to accounting. Yeah, I went, I went and worked in public accounting for a couple of years. It makes zero sense uh, in the city of Boston. I did not like it at all. Immediately knew that I needed to get out of there. But I stayed for like two and a half years, built up some cash, and then decided to make a really hard pivot. And I thought the pivot would go into sports media and it would be good to do that through Northwestern as a master's to really differentiate because I really had no background. So I was working, working for this company called the Collegiate Baseball Scouting Network, which is now defunct, but has a lot of alumni that ended up in Major League Baseball, which is, it's a story for some day. Maybe if anyone ends up AGM or GM, um, there's an individual working for the Rangers now used to work there. There's... Uh, someone who was in the twins or there's a lot of people in baseball who, who I wouldn't say a lot, maybe I'm exaggerating, but there's a good amount of people in baseball who used to work for CBBSN. And we, we essentially aggregated a bunch of like D2, D3 college data and then sold it to teams. And I, I worked on the content side there of like trying to write articles about college players and such. And sure. so from CBBSN started my own thing that was just 
get some work out there. It's called Big Three Sports. That's now defunct. Um, and then I, I think I happenstance was doing some stuff for like Hardball Times, which is now defunct. RIP. A lot of RIPs in this. Um, not they're defunct. Like yeah, they, they're, they don't have anything coming new, but I believe that's still like an archive of really, really good writing, which I'm, I'm bummed that that was a that was a oh, yeah. that I enjoyed a lot. Stuff. Yeah, and then I linked up with an individual from Driveline Baseball um, for a story uh, about Luke Jackson's slider when I started really first getting, that was kind of like the one when Edgertronic started to become kind of a thing. This was maybe back in 2018, 2019, I want to say. And we just really connected. And I like was like, yeah, I definitely want to keep in touch with him. And then Driveline had a gig open for a remote video editor where they needed someone to stitch together Edgertronic, Rapsodo, and just uh, uh, TrackMan data and stuff into like a video for pitch design sessions. So I applied and it happened that the guy that I talked to was the one who was overseeing the hiring for it. And I got that gig and worked that gig for like six to 12-ish months. I think it was really heavy for a certain period of time. And then as guys went out of gym there into the spring training and stuff, it kind of died down. But that allowed me to just build a ton of connections uh, and really ask really good questions about things and get very validated answers. And I think that kind of started to make me realize like, I really enjoy talking to coaches, I think. I think that's like the biggest thing. I was thinking this the other day, but like players are great. Players offer really good perspective, and I think it's essential to get that perspective. And people recognize player names. But in my experience, talking to coaches always allows me to understand something deeper and allows me to glean more insight on something. Like I just find it more interesting to talk to coaches. They have more developed opinions on things that are really advanced such that you can then go back to the player and get like a colorful, colorful comment or get like, a, I have no idea what you're talking about. But yeah, I really find coaches to be a really interesting piece of the media side that maybe isn't really broached too much. So I feel like I've made that my main network of contacts is just coaches in and outside of the game, third parties or actually in organization and just getting their opinion on things, getting them to kind of give me things about what they're thinking about, what their orgs are thinking about. I find that is a huge differentiator. It's helped me build out a lot of, understanding about things that are pretty advanced and again going back to the point of how do you distill that down and communicate to the public um so marquee came about after northwestern purely because i learned how to do overlays you can see there's an underlying theme of knowing some video editing here which really helped me um sure. and then i got to marquee as a video editor was helping their talent had decent communication skills person to person so they were comfortable putting me in front of like some of the talent there carlos pena ryan dempster sean marshall the old reliever is my absolute boy i love that guy so much um there's a lot of people there that are just, again, really smart on baseball. And I, they were comfortable putting me in front of them and talking to them. And then when the Cubs sold off last year, we went out and did some minor league stuff. We weren't sure if it was going to be on broadcast. We thought it was just for digital. They saw it. They thought it was good enough to be on broadcast. Um, so we put it on pregame shows. And then mm -hmm. this offseason, I was like, I want a segment. Um, and they said yes, which is crazy. Uh, so I got a segment two times a week now. Um, it's it's called it's branded by Nissan, the car company, but we just call it like Nissan Breakdowns. And I I am the entire I'm vertically integrated is what I think I like to say, where I produce it, I cut all the video, I am the talent in it. So it's it's a really interesting angle because I, I don't know whether that's the case. But my argument for that being the case was that I just thought that I had the best understanding of some of the topics I want to talk about and putting other people in the chain would break up, I think, the efficiency of it. So I was like, I'll just do it all. So that's kind of been the thing that I've primarily been working on. Now, you'll see some of the clips on Twitter. Um, I cut them up. We do it with Jim Deshays, who is the obviously color analyst for the Cubs. 
And occasionally I'll help on the broadcast and expand on things a little more. But um, yeah, I love my job. It's really cool. I think that there's, again, there's some, there's something here on the, let's talk about baseball in a smarter way. I think Sunday Night Baseball does it best. I think Guest Network does it really well with David Cohn. And I think we do it right in that same window. Um, and where we're getting there on Marquee, I think we're doing a really good job because Boog is fantastic. But it's difficult, man. I, I, the, I, I know you probably run into this all the time, like the communication of really, really complex points. And I, I'm super passionate about it. It's really cool. Like, it's cool to think about it. And I also like kind of not really f- afraid of failure anymore. Like, you know, I see that as really like a stepping stone of like, what did I do wrong? And I feel like every single time that I talk about something again, I get much better at it. And I think that's the main thing that is almost a bummer for me because we're doing new topics twice a week. So it's like, we have new stuff all the time, but like after I do a segment, I'm always like, Oh my God, like I know what I need to adjust going forward now, such that if I were yeah. to do it two more times, like I'm going to nail that. And that confidence is huge. I think just comes across in camera and stuff. So I never thought I'd be doing it on camera. So I wanted to be a beat writer. And then I, again, I started <laughs> to realize that like, I really, I thought visual ways, the visual way is huge. Like, I just think you, you get into more people's brains visually and there's more people who are willing to consider something than if you give them a bunch of numbers and text. So Yeah, yeah, sure, exactly. And I, I try to just apply it to like the type of, like when I, when I use any sort of advanced data and a lot of the concepts, it's just the type of player um, somebody is or the type of pitcher somebody is, how they sure. can just like, how you can relate that to like, you know, uh, transferable sort of major league skills and and tools um, yeah and i think particularly like with with hit tools and and power and like how we've graded fastballs um particularly fastballs for a long time i think is you know sort of been rooted in like a lot of just like eyewash whether it's like if a guy throws a certain velocity it has to be this certain grade and it doesn't have to be i mean there's better there's 90 to 92 mile per hour fastballs that are better than some 98 mile per hour fastballs like you can talk to hitters about it right um i think that's like where i apply it so i never try to go too deep into the concepts other than to just uh sort of explain it's exactly like you do where how it applies to something that you've known for a very long time as somebody who's watched baseball or is familiar with the game um, and can understand why the concept works. And it's just saying, hey, this is something that we can now measure. We can now understand in greater detail. And uh, I think that's, you know, ultimately where like, you know, my, my sweet spot lies. And I think a lot of it comes down to is just sort of applying some of these advanced numbers and taking sort of the scary new Oh, they're, you know, making, they're changing things. They're turning it into a, you know, yeah. robotics or whatever. Um, and just say, no, this is no different than somebody did this, you know, 40, 50 years ago. We just used this term for it. And now we can, you know, put a quantifiable measure to it. So I think that's really interesting. But something that you've been sort of on the forefront of talking about within the public space, and this is probably because of some of the trial and error and getting out there and talking about some new topics you were one of the first people that i've seen over the last couple of years talking um really heavily about bat fitting and um the impact that that can have on bat speed and just performance for a lot of hitters out there it's become a bit of a hot topic in the early going because nolan arenado i know is on an absolute burner he's been performing incredibly well at the major league level and he's talked a little bit about getting fit, fitted for a bat and some of the things he did in the off season a little bit more than that but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about it because you know about the topic and I thought you might be able to sort of inform us 
why people are getting into this and what specifically bat fitting needs just at a very basic yeah. Uh, level. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'll uh, the basic point of bat fitting. I think the key thing it comes down to is like they call it the BPI. It's like the balance point of the bat. There's like this device where they set bats on them, and you can understand where like the centering of the bat is. And the idea is that if the centering of that bat is further away up the barrel of the bat, it's harder to swing it. And the analogy I like here that I've heard in mechanics a lot and biomechanics a lot is just, if something is closer to your body, you can rotate faster with it. So like, if you think of like a, like a ice skater that is spinning, they pull themselves in to rotate faster. Whereas if you were to like put your limbs out and try to rotate, it's harder because you're just, you're, you're just further away from the center of rotation. And that is the point here on BPI, but it's not as simple as get the BPI as close to your hands as possible, right? Because then you could just rotate really, really fast. Like there's a balance here as with so many things in baseballs, there's a spectrum and let's find where it works. And there's two guys that I connected with a while back, Liam Mucklow and Micah Gibbs. Um, he used to work at the Titleist Performance Institute, TPI. Uh, which is the golf, um, one of the forefront leaders on the golf side of things. Greg Rose is there. There's a lot of people there who are incredibly, incredibly smart in biomechanics and applied biomechanics. And Mikey Gibbs was actually a Cub and Royal uh, minor leaguer who's now in the baseball side. But Liam and Micah were two guys I talked to, I want to say maybe two years ago. I connected with them because Driveline did like a little bit of a test study. I think Colin Hetzler was one of the first ones to kind of broach it and, and run it on the Driveline side, who's now with the Mets. Um, but Colin is known as Hetz. He broached the topic and wrote something up on driveline's blog about it, which you'll find is often of a thing, a place that thinking is about two years ahead of probably where the public is. Um, so I took that and was like, this makes a ton of sense. Cause the analogy to the golf side is crazy. I, I don't remember the player specifically, but there was an analogy that a player showed up to TPI what an all-star MVP or all-star showed up to TPI and didn't have bats. And he was going for like a mocap or something like that. Just didn't show up at bats. And someone there was, was baffled, was like, how, how? Like we, we, we have golf guys all the time. They show up at their clubs. They will not swing anything that is not their club, you know? And that's like the simple disconnect is just like, there's other sports where like sticks and hockey too, I think is another thing where it's like, that's it's so specified down to like the toe curve and stuff like that. And golf, it's like, it has to be fitted perfectly. And I have to strike the ball perfectly. In baseball, it's just like, Give me a bat, you know, and it's like, it's so funny. So that, that is the simple point is just, you know, your body moves differently when you have different BPIs in a bat. So if you go to somewhere like um, Marucci now, I believe is kind of has this baseball performance lab. They're at the forefront of it where you go there and they'll fit you for a bat. You will swing different BPIs. You'll swing different bats with different balance points and they'll mocap you while you're swinging them and understand how your body moves differently and basically suggest what's the optimal bat. And they'll do that based off very hard data, but also just off feel. And I think a good example of this is if you jump to Julio Rodriguez's YouTube channel, um, he has like a, a video that's maybe 15 minutes where he goes through the entire process um, with Liam and Micah. And it's it's the best I've seen. And it's got like 100K views. It's, I think it's an essential watch if you're interested in this topic. Getting back to the point of something visually is much more easy to pick up than say maybe a driveline blog. No offense to driveline. Um, but yeah, that's essentially the idea. There's also a story from... You know, Saris back in 2021, last year, early last year, what he talked about in relation to a variety of players. It's a really good story, but he talks he talks in a couple different ways. He talked also about the variation within bats. You get a shipment of bats, say 20 bats. There's eight of them that we know will produce exit velocity 
with a standard deviation somewhere around plus or two, uh, plus or minus two miles per hour in exit velocity side. So if you imagine a ball being hit 100, if you change literally nothing about it and you just have a different bat, the ball might go 98, you know, and obviously it's a marginal difference, maybe immaterial, but in some instances it might be material. There's also a humidity thing. We're getting into the humidor phase. Humidity also has an impact on bats where they soak up water if they're in humid environments like Florida um, and they get heavier, which again, makes it harder to swing. So I, there's a lot of elements here where, you know, we just kind of don't, we haven't really thought about this. It hasn't really been publicized in a way that I think people care about it a lot, if that makes any sense. Um, so I, I think the, the most interesting thing, I, I think that what you mentioned, we were talking about a little bit here, but like, I think when you acknowledge, like you can't just berate people with things that are new and new ideas. I think the key that I've noticed in a lot of really smart people who maybe come from driveline and make or come from wherever and make it in the major league baseball space, that they have a very good ability to acknowledge where someone else has come from and how they've gotten to where they've gotten to, as opposed to just telling them what they're doing is wrong. Um, that is a really key distinction I've noticed in some people who I think are exceptional on the coaching side. Um, the ability to place themselves in the player's body or shoes and be like, Hey man, I, I, I understand why you've gotten here. You know, you're kind of old school, you're field based, et cetera, but you're still really good. You're top 10 prospect in the system, you know, and not just going, what you're doing is wrong. I don't care that you have major league service time. You know, that's a, that's a very key distinction, I think. And with the bad fitting side, I think it applies because I think I've heard is that there's just situations where the guy doesn't like the bat that they say is more optimal for the player. It doesn't feel right. You know? So it's like, what do you do at that point? Right? Like this guy, go, there's, you got to get that player buy-in, you know, like a guy like Julio Rodriguez or Arenado, I think they have that buy-in off the jump. The question is how do you get players who really like their bat to buy in, you know, like this at bat that you've been using for 15 years that has gotten you five all-star nods and an MVP is actually not the optimal bat. We think you'd be able to get more EV if you're using a different bat. That is the key question, right? How do you convince that player to use a different bat after 10 years of success? And maybe that gets at a larger point of the best players, maybe making adjustments before um, they need to, you know, before they're 32 and their bat speed's deteriorating. And now they're like, oh, let me try that bat. That gives me a couple extra juice on um, EV side, you know? So I, that's kind of the bat fitting topic without, without getting too specific. I, I, but that balance point is the key. Just different bats have different balance points. There's variation within bats. And some guys are starting to store their bats in humidor so that they don't get heavy and such. And there's a lot of variation there. But if you think about it from the hitter, hitter perspective, it's, it's literally the only tool they have, right? Like they have their body and they have the bat and they optimize their body, but no one has cared to optimize the bat. And yeah. it's, it's, and the mean, most, it's the most basic thing in the world to me. It's crazy it hasn't taken off, but it seems like it is taking off, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it, it, exactly. Especially, you know, the way bats were traded for so long, right? You didn't even think about it. It was a certain weight or length or whatever. Yep. You just went with it and if you liked the way it felt, you know, fine. Um, but I think there's, you know, some greater understanding there. And maybe, you know, with some of these, it's a matter of, you know, slight discomfort for a few weeks as you sort of get used to the bat. Uh, as any of us, I think, as kids just playing sports that have had equipment, our parents buy us and we're like, I kind of don't like this. It's like, you know, like my old hockey skates or my yeah. old gloves or something. And then you figure something out, you get comfortable after a few weeks, and then all of a sudden it's the thing that you like the most. So exactly. I think yeah. there's sometimes there's just like getting over that initial hump, like with anything, and just moving on from there. Um, it was funny, you brought up, you know, uh, um, you know, some coaches you'd worked with 
at driveline. And I know this mm. is a concept that you touched on a little bit this week. So we're kind of tying everything in full circle here. And we had talked about it offline. It's something that I'm really, really interested, interested in. I just feel like I don't have enough of an understanding yet to really bring anything substantial to the public discussion uh, until I have a greater understanding of sort of all the different elements. But that's batted ball spin. Mm. And just some of the different elements with the the balls and just why two balls can be hit, you know, the same miles per hour in terms of exit velocity at the same launch angle and travel different uh, at different distances. Even if the pitches are the same, you know, it could be the same exact pitch from the same pitcher at a very yep. similar velocity band uh, with a very similar movement window. Um, and they move differently. And there's obviously a lot we don't understand on sort of the batted ball side. And I think that's the discussion that, you know, we had offline. We'll, we'll broach it a little bit here. We don't have to go, yeah. you know, tremendously in depth, but you talked about it the other night. And I find it interesting because we know so little about the ball. Once it sort of leaves the bat, we have a basic idea of spin rates. We're getting some more of an idea in terms of, you know, Hawkeye, mm -hmm. there are some, some batted ball spin accesses. If you can get access to that sort of stuff uh, that's out there, but we really know a lot about the ball once it leaves the pitcher's hand. We don't know as much once it leaves the bat. It's also because it's in an instant, in a millisecond, changing directions at an equal or greater velocity quite often. So um, I'm sure that has something to do with you know our inability to track it. But I think there's a lot that we can discover there and maybe learn about different hitters, different swings, different swing profiles. But what are your thoughts on this? Because I know you touched on it a little bit the other day. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's something that I just saw kicking around on Twitter. I think the key thing to generalize is just to say, you know, we have obviously some problems with the ball this year. Maybe not; they're, they're not problems, so to speak. I think that's looking a little too pessimistically. The ball is different. Um, it's probably more like the ball from 2016 to 2018, but because we're so used to the 2019 and then the mixed batch of 2021, we think it's bad, you know? Um, and, and that also might be connected to the fact that pitching has gotten a lot better and we've just we understand it really well, which comes back to the batting uh, hitting side. There's a lot of things we don't understand the hitting side, and maybe they understand in organizations really well. But I do think that general understanding on the public side is something that often is an indicator of, you know, how much maybe on the private side they know, understand well enough to take action off of. Um, because I feel like, you know, also like public research is something too. Like how many people on Twitter have gotten scooped by teams because they're doing really good stuff. And how much of that has been pitching stuff as opposed to hitting stuff, you know? Like maybe it's just not as publicized, but hitting is hitting is behind. Um, I think that someone you had on this podcast, um, Kyle Bodie, is a is a one that points this out all the time. Just he he like challenges hitting. He's just like, you guys gotta catch up. Like we're doing cool stuff, you're not, like you're just resistant to it. And that's the most aggressive stance i think i've heard on some of the hitting side stuff but i, I love it like I, I love it as opposed to just people using anecdotal things like yeah you gotta swing like this or do that you know but anyways batted ball spin yeah you take two balls like the example we had on the marquee uh pregame show the other day was two home runs same day may 4th lucas giolito nico horner patrick wisdom two balls hit the left field two fastballs middle like exact same pitch one mile per hour difference there's one mile per hour difference in the exit velocity and one degree difference in the launch angle, which is immaterial for the most part because they're both barreled balls. Left field, one goes 407, one goes 370, about 35-foot difference, give or take. And I think we're getting a lot of situations where people look at that and go, the ball's got to be fixed. Like, that is the jump conclusion. 
And I'm not saying that's not an, a point. Like, that, that could be a problem. Um, the drag is up based on the Savant data I've seen. Um, especially year over year, it's up, re again, relatively more like 2016, 2018. But I think that's just a piece of this puzzle that is why that ball goes 35 feet shallower. And the other is the batted ball spin. Um, and without getting too much into the details of like where optimal spin is and stuff, I, I think the way to still it down is to think top spin swings generally are people who have steeper attack angles. So if you think of a guy like a Joey Gallo, this is my understanding. Again, I, I'm open to being countered here. If, if you think I'm wrong or anyone listening thinks I'm wrong, but if the attack angle is too high, you have a greater tendency to top spin balls. When you top spin a ball, it reaches the apex sooner and has a steeper descent angle such that it's more it's like if you ever play tennis and you top spin a ball like that ball goes up and then right over the net it bounces earlier whereas if you were to like backspin a tennis ball you're not going to be able to like get it in the i don't know what they call the field of play in tennis i'm sounding like such an idiot right now but <laughs> what do they call it <laughs> within the lines i guess you're asking the wrong guy within the lines uh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> but yeah that's that's the idea it's just you know that that element of steep attack angle how attack angle influences the batted ball is something we can't really measure. Maybe we can. It seems like I've seen some stuff on Twitter where people are actually getting this information. But in talking to some individuals in major league organizations, they don't have the data. So I, I, maybe there's some disconnect in how it's collected. I don't. I guess what I'll say is, as I understand it, it's not something that's universally easy for anybody to get. Like I've talked to some R and D people. You know, you can't just like go into the SQL database and pull, pull a query and just get a bunch of bad ball spin from the last series. You know what I mean? It seems like it's a little more complex than that. I could be wrong, but it does not seem like the people I've talked to have been super aware of how to get that information or that it's even possible to get, even with Hawkeye. Um, so that is the key thing. It's just we don't really have a lot of understanding of how different kinds of spin off the barrel affect ball flight. And we're getting into it with now with this ball where everyone wants to blame the ball that we're becoming more aware of like, okay, maybe the ball in that 35, an example I gave of Horner and Wisdom, Maybe there's a 35 foot difference, but how much of that is ball? How much of that is spin? You know, and I think the key thing is going to end up being that spin has a large implication on it, such that you know if there's a reason why that barrel ball isn't getting out, it's probably because he's top spinning it too much, and it potentially because that B could be because that attacking was a little bit too steep. Um, but the key thing I think coming back to it, which I want to ask you, Ralph, is like, or Jeff, wow, I called you Ralph. Oh my God! I, I so I know <laughs> I know Jeff is Ralph because of Rasmo. Used to be known as Ralph, but that is defunct now. And internally, subconsciously, I'm so used to calling you Ralph. I think I still have you because my phone is Ralph too. But <laughs> what I will ask you, Jeff, is: Do you think this is something the hitter can control? Because that's the key thing at the end of the day, right? Like, can you control what is a hitter? And is it more that you can control it, or is it more that it's just a signifier that something needs to change? You know, like that is the key thing for me. You know, I, I don't know the answer to it, but I, I, I wonder whether it's even a valuable data point. I, I think it's possible. I know like I, I had read and I know I've mentioned it before on Twitter. I read this book, Quant Hitting, and they went a little bit into the different type of, you know, spin profiles with topspin and backspin. And I don't know how fully fleshed out the, the sort of final conclusion of like, too much backspin is bad, mm. um, but there was sort of a sweet spot in terms of spin rates and backspin. And there's certainly some some batted balls that 
approach spin rates that you couldn't throw at that rate. Yeah, for sure. Um, Especially like slice balls. Have a yeah, huge, exactly. Huge and you have to think that like, you know, cutters and, you know, sliders and pitches that move like that in general um, have the highest spin rates or, you know, really, really, really um, high spin curveballs. Um, and I think it's sort of the same with batted balls. It's just a matter of maybe are there certain attack or launch angles that are more conducive for a, a wider range of efficient spin axes off the bat. Yeah. And what I mean by that is there has to be like, it can't just be like, Oh, I, cause the, the seam orientation from pitch to pitch is going to vary too much. Right. For you to have a high rate of success. Um, and, you know, perhaps, you know, if your barrel is flush enough, in the zone at a certain point, you have the ability to backspin a wider range of seam orientations and mm. efficient, you know, spin axis. I think that's what we're ultimately going to try to maybe figure out or hopefully find out. Um, that I think once we figure that out, it will be able to tell us a lot more about swing paths and the type of contact that they create. And why certain guys underperform, we'll say, their exit velocity and numbers and contact rate even versus others. And we may even understand certain guys who are more successful against certain types of sliders or certain types sure. of balls or certain types of fastballs. And wouldn't it be wild if, you know, all of a sudden teams were, uh, <laughs> were setting their lineups based on, you know, batted ball splits off of particular pitch types and like at a very like yeah granular level very yeah. very like you know granular level as opposed to just be like this guy can't hit lefty change mm. for them where it's really more like he can't hit this slider but he can hit that one like i just yeah like, i i think you might be right because you know, I, you know. the giant the giants are doing cool stuff with this where i think there was a story yeah. in nbc sports where they're they're like not doing the old splits thing like they're looking at pitch shape with bat sure path. So I wouldn't be shocked if the natural evolution off that is just this guy has a better ability to naturally backspin in the optimal window, this kind of ball, you know, like maybe that's what it more is. It's a tool rather than a trainable characteristic. You know, that's my theory right now is it's more for us to be like, okay, let's match this up in this way. Or this guy is maybe a little underrated because he's able to get a lot of flush contact. Sure. where it's optimal backspin, even though the raw power is not great. Maybe that's like an explainer for like a, like a Mookie, you know what I mean? Where like, yeah, or a Bregman. Exactly. Never had like, cra doesn't have crazy raw, but like that is nullified when he hits 40 home runs at the major league level. You know what I mean? Like, sure. what are you talking about? He doesn't have raw power to get 40 home runs, you know? So like, maybe there's something there. Maybe it's an identifier rather than like something that is brought into like a swing design session, you know, where they're mo-capping the guy and sure. they're like, you got to backspin more, so move this way. It's like I, I don't know if that's going to be a thing, but well, it might be a thing, but probably in like in a harmful way. Like yeah, exactly. It's happened with guys who just have flat fastballs that try to make it hoppy, and it's like you don't have a hoppy fastball. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> You're probably better off like throwing from up here and throwing a two seamer. I'm yep. sorry. To, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see the fallback from any of that sort of stuff. But the last thing I wanted to talk about with you here as we sort of wrap up, yep. is your job. You're around the Cubs. You're around player development. You're a player development analyst specifically. So you're obviously privy to a lot of interesting conversations. Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about the direction uh, that the Cubs are headed in. I know they've employed some really smart people 
um, you know, on the hitting and pitching side. So I'm, I'm interested to hear about this. Yeah, for sure. I, I think, I think the key thing is often when there's regime change, it may take a while for that to actually manifest in major league level performance and even potentially even minor league level performance. I think we're seeing this with the Orioles now, who is an organization I think I admire a lot what they're doing. And I also don't think that was really hard to call at all. I think back in 2019, I sent out a tweet that was like, this is the year the Orioles turn around. And I was probably two years, three years behind. I just was trying to accelerate a little more. But it was very obvious that that team is, they have really smart people from the Astros organization. They just copy pasted the system. And I'm not shocked at all. That team's going to be, that AL East is going to be insane. But anyways, back to the Cubs. They went through that transition period probably prior to the 2020 season. Um, brought on a lot of different individuals. Uh, Craig Breslow being the primary one, who's now an AGM, went in the organization around the pitching side. Really smart. Um, I've had some conversations with him. Great guy, number one. Both Connecticut boys, so that was a little bit of a bonding experience there. Um, he implemented and brought in a lot of other people that I think, and maybe maybe also let some other people go, um, who are finally, I think, getting around the side of developing pitching in the Cubs organization, which was not the case for all of eternity, for the most part, where they have some of the worst homegrown development stats um, around the pitching side, and they were behind. Like, they were behind. They'll admit they're behind. I don't think that's something that's novel or bad for me to say. It's just that now it's finally coming around. Um, and it's it's good to see. I, I do think there's some interesting things still going on with the Cubs, though, I think, in a, in a lot of ways. Um, primarily because a lot of the data I've seen isn't like data that jumps out. It's not like Yankee Org data where everything is sweeper 82 with 10-plus horizontal break and any of those guys can be leverage relievers and major level as we're seeing with like Michael King, Clay Holmes and those guys. It's, it's a much different set of skills. And I, I'm curious as to whether that is because they're limited by prior or regimes at player acquisition, like the players, the raw players they have, they just can't do a ton with such that we're just going to have to wait more for a, a different evolution of guys to come through, which I think you're kind of seeing already with the most recent draft um, where they drafted really, really well. Uh, I think Drew Gray is one that is popped on Fangraphs top 30. He's just went down Tommy John. I had him just outside my top 25 in my rankings for the Cubs. But he is pretty much what you want. He's an IMG Academy guy. He was two-way. He just started pitching. He gets a ton of ride from a low slot and has a, a nasty sweeper already. Uh, I think he's a guy that's just going to add velocity. Um, and he's like a model of like, okay, it's changing. Like they're getting better raw materials to then tinker in directions that they know how to tinker with. Um, I also think Jordan Wicks is a guy who has a, a pretty high floor with that changeup, but he's started to throw a little bit more of a sweeping slider. Um, and I think that pitch might even be a little better than his changeup on the raw data side, which is a really hot take because the changeup was graded out really, really well. So I, there's, there's these nuggets of things happening in the org where you're like, Oh, that's different. That's modern. That's modern. You see a guy like Brandon Hughes come up the other day, K five of the first five batters he faced or whatever, which is just bananas. But he's a guy who like the data on the minor league side that I saw wasn't particularly great. Like the slider is like seven inches of break. I think he might alter it slightly lighty, righty versus lefty. He's a lefty killer because of the slot. He throws in that low nineties. And I, I'm, I always, I'm becoming more skeptical when I just look at the data and go, this just isn't jumping out to me. You know, one of the things I, I've been told by some of the smarter coaches I know is like, there's a really visual component to hitting that I don't think 
the data really gets too well. Like I, the thing I hear all the time is like, does the pitch shape fit his throw? Which is very anecdotal, but it's something that even some of the smart organizations I've talked to consider a lot. A lot of hitter feedback involved, I think, in pitches night sessions, which we really don't think about a lot. Like, how does that pitch look? You know, like I think this was the argument with that I've heard a little bit with Andrew Heaney in terms of that slider that he used to have that was not good, and then he goes to the Dodger org, and that pitch is different, but it doesn't actually grade out substantially better. But it's a better pitch, and he's commanding it better. And it's like, why? It's like, well, maybe there's something visual in there that we're not really able to pick up. And I think that might be the case a little bit with a guy like Brandon Hughes, where like maybe the Cubs are getting better on identifying things that aren't popping in the data, whether it be a deception point, whether it be how does, how does the spin fit his throw, like all these little anecdotal things that allow a guy who's 91 to work in the major league level. And like, again, maybe it's a small sample. Maybe it's the fact that there wasn't a lot of data for the Pirates on what Brandon Hughes threw such that they saw him and just had no idea what that slider looked like and a lot of awkward swings, which could be the case. And maybe it evens back out, and then Hughes has to make adjustments in the inverse direction. But that's the key thing, I think. I, I'm a little hesitant to say that the Cubs are like on the forefront of a lot of pitching stuff, but they're putting the resources into things sure. to be on the forefront. And they have the raw materials to do it. But the thing I think they are on the forefront of, and they're doing a really good job of is strength conditioning. Um, Adam Beard came into the organization, I think, 2019, started to actually have the ability to make some changes in 2020. And then brought in an individual named Corey Kennedy, who's become a, a good friend of mine, um, contact in the org. I think he's comfortable with saying that because we've publicized some stuff that he's talked about a ton. And he was he did some Canadian Olympic work, worked with Olympic athletes. And the simple thing that he came in and, and knew was wrong with the organization was that they just weren't, weren't measuring anything. Weren't, weren't measuring anything, which is just insane to think about that they're putting so much money into these assets prior to 2020 and not measuring anything. Like they had no strength barometers. They had no anything. And they key thing I talked to Corey about is just like you break down strength into like max force and rate of force development. It's a really simple way to look at it, right? How much strength can you output? What is the maximum amount of strength you can output? And how quickly can you get to that? And the analogy for how quickly can you get to it and why that's relevant is to think about the throw or think about the swing and how quickly that occurs. How sure. quickly can we get you to your max force? Um, that is the two pillars of the strength and conditioning side. They have a lot of ways to tinker with that and talk about it. They do a lot of jump testing in the organization, which is really good for workload management. Um, this might not all manifest in lower IL days, et cetera, less injuries. Like Cubs ran into a ton of injuries. I think that's a product of change and learning, but I, I buy into what they're doing on the strength conditioning side in terms of the investment they have in it, in terms of the minds they have there and in terms of the player buying. And I think that's huge. And maybe there's some work to still be done in stitching some of that SNC back to actual pitching performance and hitting performance. But I think the raw things are underlying in the or to, to, create long-term success it's just a matter of stitching them all together and allowing for that synergy to go forward and maybe that takes a little more time but we're seeing now that i think you're getting to the point where the cubs not being able to develop homegrown guys is kind of not the case anymore they have a lot of raw talent that came in from other orgs and last trade deadline and the prior you darvish deal etc they're they're a pretty loaded organization they have a lot of guys in that like 45-ish ofp future potential window you know what i mean where it's like you know, 45 plus ish as, as some other sites will call it, where it's like, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a little variance here. Like this guy might end up at 50, might end up at 40, might end up a role guy at 45. Like we'll see. But I, I like what they're doing on the SNC side, I think primarily. And I just, I'm waiting for that synergy to happen between different departments. Cause I, maybe, maybe they, they'd probably tell me this is completely wrong, but my perception is that I see a lot of stuff happening on the SNC side. And then I still look at the data on the minor league side and I'm like, okay, I'm seeing some tiny changes here and there, but it's not like there's full scale, like, we now have three pitchers in every level with the sweeper or 
three pitchers who are throwing three miles per hour harder. Like there's these pop-up cases of it. And maybe that's the progression of it. Maybe I'm just not used to it. That's the probably the ignorance on my side is like, I'm not, I have not followed an organization this closely to know when things start to occur, you know? So it's like when I see something like the Orioles happening where like every guy coming up there is unique, they value VB, you know, there's a lot of things that you're just like, yeah, this is cool. Like Tyler, I think it's Tyler Wells is throwing two curveballs and stuff with different seam rotations. Like that stuff's sick. And I don't see that with the Cubs yet, but I think that's okay. It's just a matter of time, I think, before it does occur. Um, Because they have some really, really smart minds in there, and they're putting the resources into it. It's just a matter of whether it's implemented and actually bought into. That's the key point. Gets back to the bat fitting side, right? Like, this bat's better. It's like, okay, I just don't believe you. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) I guess we'll see how they do with that. But Yeah, yeah, it takes time for buy-in, buy-in from coaches, and just, you know, I think – it also takes time for changes to fully manifest themselves too. And totally coming out of, you know, the, the, the 2020 shutdown of the minor leagues, um, depending upon how connected players were to the coaching staff and some of those concepts and the availability of equipment and just the ability to train, I think dictated a lot of success last year. And then this year was just sort of back to work and uh, a much more normal off season. So I'm interested to see who progresses this year versus last. Uh, And maybe some guys that fall back because they didn't have the head start that maybe they had the prior year. I think that happened with a lot of players too. And maybe it's under discussed, you know? Yeah. And the the last thing I mentioned really quick here is that the Cubs are on the forefront of like this off season you're talking about. They, they had a player develop prospect development camp that ran through the entire off season. Um, Yeah. That is something that I think is just going to catch on all throughout baseball. It's optional for the players, but the guys who went there, like you're able to like get really good immediate feedback sure. on the strength and conditioning side. And they're, they have hands on with those guys. Like they're two workouts a day, five days a week, good nutrition. Everything's paid for. Like from Corey's perspective, Corey Kennedy, the director of S and C there in sports science at the Cubs, like that is optimal for him to like guinea pig some of these guys and really progress them and almost guarantee strength increases and such. That is, I think, a key thing that other orgs are going to pick up on and do. It's just a matter of resource allocation, which gets back to the fact that the Cubs are putting resources into it. But that is something that I, I would bet – I don't have confirmation on this, but I bet they're going to do it again this year. And they're going to get the game. They're like, Brent Davis was there. Cam Killian was there. DJ Harris was there. Like, sure. so many of their top prospects were there all offseason. And I think that that's huge. Like, I think there's a lot of variance where guys will come back after an offseason and not maybe – have progressed as quickly as the org would have liked or like there's like development that has to occur still you know where i think the analogy i heard is like a lot of guys sometimes internationally go home and just don't have the same resources here and then come back and then you spend four months trying to get them back to where you had them when they left you know and it's like so eight months of your 12 month year are the guy deteriorating and you getting him back to where you thought he was and then now you have four months of actual improvement it's like what if you just had 12 years of improvement or excuse me, 12 months of improvement. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like every so single the most important years of development. I think that's exactly I've heard the same thing from other organizations as well, especially forward thinking organizations that, you know, they try to open that up in the off season to get a lot of mo- more time for those guys. And I think that uh, we've seen it with some players that maybe were on the 40 man roster that went back to minor leagues that were delayed a little bit, you know, that weren't major leaguers that yeah. had access to the full facilities and maybe a little bit more coaching and understanding and have already been through that sort of, that that progression uh, period um but yeah i think it's i think it's incredibly important and it's a great point for us to sort of end the show yeah. on uh lance once again i want to thank you for coming on uh let our listeners know where they can find you on social media etc yeah at lance bras on twitter i also have a youtube channel that i do some stuff on i think if you just search lance bras 
Dowski, it should come up. D-O-W-S-K-I is my last name there. Um, yeah, those are my two main platforms. I, the YouTube stuff definitely more national side where I, I try to jump around the league. And then my Twitter channel is kind of where everything's consolidated through. Uh, MarqueeSportsNetwork.com, we have some stuff on there. And obviously, you'll probably see if you ever hop into a Cubs game that aren't blacked out of it. Um, you'll see Boog and JD and some of my work and stuff. So uh, enjoy. Yeah. Thanks again for coming on. And uh, thanks for listening out there. We'll see you next time.